Welcome. Uh, my name is Jamie Borchik. I'm one of the preaching pastors here. And it's great to have you with us. Um, if you are just joining us for the first time today, or if you've been away for a little while, uh, you're jumping in in the middle of a series that we're doing called Explore God. Uh, over, over this seven-week period, there are 815 churches across the city of Chicago doing the same series where we're looking at seven of the biggest questions that people often have about God and about faith. And so if you look up on the screen behind me, you can see those questions uh, what we've been walking through. And this is week four. So uh, we've talked about a few of them already. And uh, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at how various different religious traditions and how contemporary secularism addresses these questions. So uh, our thesis in this series is that when you look at Christianity in relation to all of the other options in front of you, Christianity makes better sense than the alternatives does, uh, than the alternatives do. In other words, Christianity makes enough sense for you to believe it. It makes enough sense to be believed. And so that's what's going on with Explore God. And if you've missed any of these other weeks, uh, you can find uh, the sermons from the past few weeks on the Park Church app or wherever you get your podcast. And I'd encourage you to go listen to those. So you can kind of hear where we're at in this whole trajectory of the series. Now, before we dive into the, today's question, I want to remind you that at the end of the service, we'll be taking some text-in questions. So if anything I say surfaces some questions for you, we'd love to have a chance to, to answer those questions today. So text them into the number on the screen. We'll do our best to answer them at the end. All right. So today... Uh, we're looking at the question, is Christianity too narrow? And of all the questions in this series, I think that this one is the one that most intensely strikes a nerve in our current cultural context. The ethic of our pluralistic day is one of tolerance and inclusion. Anything, anything at all that seems narrow or exclusive in any kind of way is automatically assumed to be offensive and bigoted. So questions like this one today surface all kinds of strong reactions and questions for us. So in light of that reality, uh, I want to take a moment to pray and ask God to help me and to help us as we talk about this question. Okay, so would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this morning for the chance to gather together. We just ask your help in this time. Would you give us clarity as we think about this question? Would you help us to think about it uh, rightly? Um, God, any biases we have or prejudices we have coming into this question, I, I pray that you'd uh, help us to lay those down so that we could think well around this today. And more than that, God, I, I pray that you would speak, that um, wherever people are at today coming in here, whatever background they've come in with, that all of us would hear your voice in what we're going to say. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so where I want to start this morning so I want to start by actually looking at what Christianity teaches, what Christianity actually teaches, so that we can then evaluate it fairly to answer the question, is Christianity too narrow? We need to know what Christianity says so that we can evaluate, is it too narrow? Well, and to do that, we're going to look at the Bible. Just so we know that what I'm saying is not just Jamie's opinion or Pastor Jason's opinion or Park Church's opinion, but, but we want to see that, that this is what Christianity actually teaches. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Um, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there. You can grab one of the Bibles in the back. That, that's our gift to you if you don't have one. But Acts chapter 4, verse 8. And as you open your devices or as you flip there, <clears throat> let me give you a little context for this passage. The book of Acts was originally written by, was written by this guy named Luke. And Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Um, he was a physician by training, and he was a scholar. He was an academic. 
And he, he went and he did extensive research about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and then about the early church. And then he compiled his research and he put together the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And the book of Acts in particular tells the historical story of what happened in the first century church after Jesus left. And so um, what you've got in Acts, in Acts chapter 3, just early on in it, what happens is two of Jesus' followers, these guys named Peter and John, they heal this guy who had spent his whole life paralyzed. They bump into him in the temple, and, and he asks them for money. And they say, we don't have money, but we have, we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the guy gets up, who's never been able to walk in his whole life, and he starts jumping around and praising God. And uh, because a healing like that was just as crazy and unexpected and unbelievable in their day as it is in our day, a whole big crowd comes around to see what happened. Like, they, they all knew this guy. And they're like, how is he now walking? It was crazy to them. They, they, they didn't know what to think. And so Peter, like any savvy public communicator, sees a crowd and takes advantage of the opportunity. And so he steps up and he, he preaches a sermon. He, he talks to him. And he tells everybody, Jesus healed this guy. Jesus is the one who did it. And then he invites everyone in the crowd to repent and to turn to Jesus so they can be forgiven of their sins by God and then receive God's healing in their own lives. Well, the city leaders in Jerusalem weren't real thrilled about this whole Jesus thing. They were the ones who a few months earlier had put Jesus to death. And, and so now they've got this, this, these guys, these followers of Jesus, in the center of town, causing a, a fuss, getting a whole bunch of people excited and talking about Jesus again. And so they're like, we don't like this. This is a problem. We need to do something about it. So they do what any people in power do when someone says a message that they don't like and they have the power to do something about it. And they arrest him and they throw him in jail. And so these guys end up in jail. And then the next day, the leaders bring Peter and John to the very same courtroom where Jesus stood trial a few months earlier. And so it's in that courtroom scene that we pick up the story in verse 8. So Acts chapter 4, verse 8. This is what it says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. So Peter says it was Jesus who healed the paralyzed dude, and it was the same Jesus who you leaders put to death, but who God then raised from the dead. Jesus healed him. And this is where we get to the central claim of Peter's message there, and to the relevant claim of this passage for our question this morning. Look at what Peter says in verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's in the Bible. Salvation, the word salvation, it means to have your wrongs forgiven and your relationship with God restored. It means that you get to know God right now. You get to have a real relationship with him. And you get eternal life and you get to spend forever with God. That's what salvation means. And what Peter's saying is that salvation, all of that, is found in no one else. That there is no other name by which people can be saved. So to be perfectly clear, Peter is saying that the only way, the only way that you get forgiven of your sins the only way that you get made right with God, the only way you get to spend forever with God, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
That's the only way. Peter is making an exclusive, narrow truth claim. Jesus alone saves. That's his claim. Straight up. And it's a claim that didn't start with Jesus, or it didn't start with Peter. It actually started with Jesus himself. So, for example, and there are lots of places that you could go to see this, but I'll give you one. For example, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to God is through me. That's what Jesus said. And so this exclusive, narrow truth claim started with Jesus himself. And then his earliest followers, those who knew him and watched his life, death, and resurrection and heard his teaching, those guys, they took that exclusive claim and they repeated it in one way or another throughout their lives. And so you can find that exclusive claim repeated in, in nearly, uh, by nearly every author and in nearly every document in the New Testament. It's all over the place. So that's why Peter says there is salvation in no one else. That was the message and it is the message. It's what Christianity has always taught. And so the point is this. From the very beginning, from Jesus himself through the early church to our own day, Christians following Jesus' own example have always believed and taught the exclusive and narrow claim that salvation is found only in Christ and in Christ alone. There's one way. There's one option. That's it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Christianity is fundamentally narrow and exclusive. It is. All right. Now I know that as I say all that, I just confirmed some suspicions for some of you. And some of y'all, your, your blood pressure is rising a little bit, okay? But I want to encourage you to stick with me, okay? Because... Uh, we're just getting started on this. We've got uh, 25, probably 30 more minutes to go, okay? And we've got, we've got more to say on this. So you need to, need to stick with me. I said that Christianity is exclusive and narrow. But that's not the question today. The question is, is Christianity too narrow? And to answer that, we need to say a little more. So let's keep going. In Acts chapter 4, right after Peter makes that exclusive, narrow statement, the, the leaders, they kick him and John out of the courtroom and they have a little private meeting among themselves. And as they're talking, uh, they can't deny that this healing has taken place. The paralyzed dude is standing there. They, they can't escape it. He, he's walking around, jumping and doing stuff. But they don't like the message that's being preached about it. And so look at what they do in verse 17. It says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn the apostles to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And verse 21 tells us then that they further threatened them before they let him go. So what you got in this chapter is a scene that looks strangely like something out of our own day. You've got Peter and John preaching this message about salvation in Jesus alone. And then you've got people who are offended and annoyed by it who tell them that you've just got to shut up. You can't say that. You see, this exclusive message about Jesus was offensive in Peter's day in the first century. And it's offensive in our day in the 21st century. It always has been. See, in our day, this, offensive, this message that salvation is found in no one else offends lots of people. So I know that for a lot of you in here today, 
and for lots of others around us, in our neighborhood, in our, in our workplaces, in our schools, the answer to the question, is Christianity too narrow, is a really obvious yes. Of course it is. And all the more so in light of what I just said. I, I just, the things that I just told you. Like People look at that and they say, yeah, it's super narrow. I can't believe you believe that. But here's why we think that it's too narrow. We live in a day of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. And descriptively, what that means is, is that there are lots of religions, plural, from which to choose. That's just a reality in our world. You look at our city. You look at our neighborhood. Rogers Park is like the most diverse zip code in America. right? You got people from everywhere who believe all kinds of things. You, you've literally, in this neighborhood, you've literally got the whole religious alphabet from atheists to Zoroastrians and everything in between. So descriptively, describing the way our world is, it is religiously pluralistic. It just is. But what happens is we look at that descriptive reality and it becomes a prescription, a prescriptive reality that tells us what we're supposed to do with it. So prescriptively, describing the way that we should think about this diversity, what we're told, what we're encouraged, and sometimes even outright commanded to do, is to embrace and celebrate all of that religious diversity. Like, this is a great thing. We should affirm and celebrate all of this. So no one tradition or teaching is supposed to be privileged over any others. Everybody is right and nobody can be wrong. Because all religions are basically different paths up the same mountain. And, and, and at the end of the day, they're all basically the same anyway, right? That's how we think about it. The, the, the chief virtue of this prescriptive pluralism is the virtue of tolerance. And the chief sin is intolerance. So we put coexist bumper stickers on our cars. We designate safe spaces on our university campuses. And the one thing that you can't ever do is tell somebody else that you are wrong about what you believe. You can't say that. So here's how a few famous voices have expressed this prescription of pluralism. Check this out. Years ago, Mahatma Gandhi put it this way. The soul of religion is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. And it would be the height of intolerance to believe that your religion is superior to other religions and that you would be justified in wanting others to change your faith, to your faith. More recently, Oprah Winfrey put it this way. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Or probably my favorite, Homer Simpson. <laughs> I'm going to die! Jesus, Allah, Buddha, I love you all. This is prescriptive pluralism. It tells us that we must believe that the religions of the world are just different paths up the same mountain and that ultimately all roads lead to God and even that all religions are ultimately the same. And, and recent data tells us that, that most people around us believe this narrative. Pew Research tells us that 70% of all Americans and almost 60% of self-identified Christians believe that many religions lead to God. So as a culture, we have swallowed the pill of prescriptive pluralism. This is us. But here's the deal. There's some major problems with prescriptive pluralism. And I want to take a couple minutes to address two of them. And I'm going to borrow some language and ideas from a guy named J.D. Greer here because I find his language helpful. So two major problems we need to talk about with prescriptive pluralism. 
First, there's an arrogance problem, and then there's a logical problem. All right, so, so here's the arrogance problem. There, there's this well-known ancient Indian proverb, or a, a parable, that often gets used to pr promote prescriptive pluralism. Uh, the, story, the story is about this image. The story goes that there are a number of blind men who, who live in a village, and they've never met an elephant. And one day, uh, someone brings an elephant to town, and the, and the blind men, they hear about this elephant, elephant and they want to know what it's like. They want to they understand an elephant. And so they go, and each of them touches a different part of the elephant. Uh, but, but each of them touches different places on the elephant, and, and then describes the elephant based on what they feel. So one of them grabs a tusk and says, the elephant is like a spear. And another one touches the, the side of the elephant and says, an elephant is like a wall. Another one grabs the elephant's leg and says, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk. That's what an elephant is like. And, and the point of the story is that all these blind men are touching the same object, but they only understand part of the whole. And so the religions of the world are then said to be like the blind men. Each religion touches just a part of God. And so what we need to do is we all really need to listen to each other in order to really understand the totality of what God is like. And anyone who claims that, that their understanding of God is the, is the whole story, anyone who says, like, I know the whole picture, anyone who says that is, is just arrogant. It's as arrogant as one of those blind men insisting that an elephant is only like a spear or a wall or a tree trunk. Now, I can, I can appreciate, I do appreciate the emphasis in that story on the importance of listening to others, of being humble in our posture toward people of other different religious positions. Like, that's good and right, and it ought to characterize the way that we relate to people who believe different things from us. We ought to live civilly and peacefully and love our neighbors well. But there's a huge problem with that whole elephant analogy. Think about it. Who's the only person in the story who knows the whole picture? The narrator. It's the person telling the story. The person telling the story is saying, I see. I see what's really going on. You all are blind, but I really see. I see the whole elephant, and it's an elephant. So you're wrong when you say whatever you say about it. I see the whole picture. And so, so the person saying that, the narrator, is claiming the very knowledge that he insists that the blind men can't have. He's doing the thing that he prohibits them from doing. And when you say that all religions just see a, a piece of the truth... What you're doing is you are making the very same kind of, of truth claim, the same absolute truth claim that you're prohibiting others from making. You're saying, in effect, this is the way it really is. I see, but all you religious people, you're blind. You're saying that Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, Buddha, Krishna, and all their followers are blind and wrong, but you're right. And that's pretty arrogant. That's at least as arrogant as any religious person saying that my way is right. And probably worse, because you're telling all the religious people in the world, the vast billions of them, that they're all wrong. So prescriptive pluralism masquerades as a, as a humble way to approach religious diversity. But in actuality, it's, it's more arrogant than any religion is itself. So that's the arrogance problem. Now here's the second problem. And this is the logical problem. So pluralism says that, that deep down all religions are basically the same and they all lead to the same place. But in reality, if you believe that, what it tells me is that you've never actually studied any of those religions. Because logically and factually, when you actually look at what the different religions of the world teach, they are very clearly not the same. 
So check out this chart. This is my best attempt to fairly and concisely capture the core beliefs of these major religious traditions, which are held, uh, people who believe these six things comprise 95% of the world's population. So this is what most people believe, one of these six things. And if you want to look at this more closely, you can email me and I'll, I'll be happy to send it to you. And, and we don't have time to look at everything on here, but I need to point out a couple things. All right, so look, look first at the row that says on God at the top. Atheism says that there is no God. Buddhism is agnostic on God. They say like, well, there might be a God, there might not be, but we're, we're not really sure. Uh, Hinduism says that there are literally millions of gods and goddesses. Islam and Judaism say there's one God. And Christianity says that God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. So, now if you look at that, those are all mutually contradictory claims. There can't be one God and millions of gods and no God all at the same time. There just can't be. Logically, it, they can't all be true. So the implication of that is that at least one of these views is wrong. And, and, and maybe one of them is right, but they can't all be right at the same time. They just can't. They believe totally different things. And we could go through every single column and row on this chart and we could play that same game. These are completely different ways of understanding reality. So suppose a, uh, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, a Buddhist monk, a Hindu priest, an atheist philosopher, and a Christian pastor all walk into a bar. No, j just playing. Um, but, but, but imagine, imagine that all those people, they come together and they sit around a table and they talk about what they believe. Now, they might share, they, they would probably share some common views on basic morality stuff. But as soon as you start talking about the deeper questions of life, like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? How do we get there? As soon as you get to those kind of questions, they're going to disagree with one another. They're going to sincerely disagree with one another on almost every single point. Now, hopefully they'd be civil about it and they'd be able to have a good dialogue. But they couldn't with integrity say that they all believe the same things. Because they don't. And so to prescribe pluralism and to tell people that all these religions are basically the same is patently false. These are not just paths on different sides of the same mountain. They're all climbing totally different mountains. They're, they're, they're making mutually exclusive truth claims, and they can't all be true at the same time. They can't. And so this is the problem with prescribed pluralism. It's arrogant and it's illogical. And so that begs the question, if we can't just say they're all equally valid, then what do we do with these claims? And I think that a far better approach than prescribing pluralism to everyone and just pretending that everything's the same is to actually look at the truth claims that are made by each of these religions and evaluate them on their own merits. Weigh the evidence and see which one makes the most sense. Which one most accurately corresponds to the reality of the world we live in. You know, that, that's really the project that we're trying to undertake with this Explore God series. We're doing our best here to hold up these different perspectives and evaluate them one against another to see which one makes the best sense. And, and yeah, we're biased. Like, I'm a Christian pastor up here talking about this stuff. So there's some bias built in. I acknowledge that, but everybody's biased. And our thesis is that Christianity does, in the end, make the most sense. But, but you have to decide at the end of the day what you think. You've got to weigh it and you've got to make a decision. And you can't just punt on this. You can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be agnostic on it. Like, there's an answer out here. Something's right and something's wrong, and you've got a responsibility to figure it out. So think about it. 
And I know that looking at all the evidence for this stuff and weighing it out can be really daunting. Like, a lot of us don't have a lot of free time to do that, okay? So, so can I give you a little cheat code? Is that all right? Can I give you a cheat code as you think about this stuff? As you evaluate Christianity in particular, it all hinges on Jesus. The whole thing rises and falls on whether or not Jesus is who he said he was. If you can show somehow that Jesus is a myth or that he didn't rise from the grave, if you can demonstrate that, then you can throw the whole thing away. In the New Testament, Paul says that. He says, scrap the whole thing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So, so look into it. But on the flip side, if Jesus is actually God, if he really did live, die, and rise again, then you've got your answer. And that has implications for your life. But what you need to do is you need to look at Jesus and see what you think. And lucky for you, next week that's exactly what we're doing. The next question in the series, in, in the series is, is, uh, is Jesus really God? So come back for that and maybe we can help you uh, with the cheat code, all right? Now, there's one thing that the religions of the world have in common, they do have in common, that we haven't talked about yet. And what it is, it's this shared recognition that there is something wrong in the world. There is some kind of gap between what we as humans are and what we ought to be. So it's like this. Uh, way over here, this is the standard over on this side of the stage. Like, think past the curtain. Here's the standard. Okay? But we look at our reality, and here's where we are. Way over here on this side of the curtain. This is our reality. And any honest observer of humanity recognizes this reality. It's not to say that we're as bad as we could be, but we're certainly not as good as we should be. Like, there's just stuff in our world that's messed up. There's stuff in our lives that's messed up. We fall short of, of whatever standard. And, and every religious tradition recognizes this. So there's a gap between here and there. There's a gap, and, and it's a chasm. So you can imagine there's no stage here. Like, I'm just on a cliff, and there's a huge canyon, and then there's another cliff over there. That's our reality. And everybody recognizes it. And the question for all of us is, what do we do about it? How do we get from here to there? Well, I'll just be honest. Like, I'm an athlete. Um, that's what I've done my whole life. So when I see a gap like that, my inclination is, well, let's try to jump it. Let's see if we can make it. So, so let's see what happens. All right, I'm going to try, try to jump this gap. Y'all ready for this? Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to give it a shot. Okay, not quite. All right, not quite. So I'm not quite strong enough to get from here to there. It's not going to happen. All right. So what happens then is religion comes along. And, and what religion does is it prescribes me an exercise regimen. So if the founders of the great religions of the world are all doctors, they all essentially see, see my condition and they say that what I need to do is I need to try harder. I need to work out my spiritual and moral muscles. Okay? So in, uh, in Buddhism, they tell me that I need to work the Eightfold Noble Path. Get after that. All right, here we go. Good. All right. And then... Uh, in Judaism, I got the Ten Commandments. So get after it. Here we go. All right. And then Islam comes along. And they say uh, the five pillars. So get after some pillars. All right. Here we go. Get my workout in. All right. Feeling good. Feeling good. All right. So I'm developing spiritual disciplines. I'm participating in some rituals. I'm meditating. I'm praying. I'm, I'm fasting. Like I'm following the religious and moral rules. I'm working harder. I'm getting better. I'm getting it. All right. All right. Now I'm ready. So, so I worked out. And I'm stronger now. I'm feeling good. So let's try this thing again. And this time I'm going to give it a little running start. I've been working out. Are you ready? Here we go. Here we go. Ah! Ugh! Didn't make it. 
Not good enough. Can't get there. You get the idea. And I'm out of breath. (laughs) The point is, I'm never going to make it on my own effort, am I? Like, I can't. The gap is too big. Maybe you get Michael Jordan out here, you get LeBron James, and they get a running start, and they get to about here. Not even they're going to make it. Maybe you get some super athletic, superhuman freak that gets out here, and, and maybe they could, maybe, but, but I don't think so, right? Like this gap, this gap is not that far, but it's too far. It's too big. And when you actually look at what the religions of the world teach, pretty much all of them acknowledge that. So for Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses are a non-Christian group that pretends to be Christian, but they, they don't believe what Christians believe. They don't believe that stuff. And so the number for Jehovah's Witnesses that will ultimately be saved, that will make it from there to there, is 144,000 people. Out of the 7 billion people on the planet today, and all the numbers that lived before us, 144,000 is a pretty small number. In Islam... In Islam, only, only a very small ratio of people will be saved and enter into paradise. Numbers in the Quran say something along the lines of one out of a thousand people. And not only to, to be part of that one in a thousand, not only do you have to be a Muslim to start with, but you also have to do good works in sufficient number to merit paradise. And even then, you can never know. You can never know. So you spend your whole life striving and hoping that Allah will be merciful to you. But in the end, you know that most people are going to end up in hell, and no matter how hard they try, And so experientially, for lots and lots of Muslims, Islam feels really narrow because even for you, you might not ever enter paradise. You just can't know. In Hinduism, the goal is reaching enlightenment. But in Hinduism, you've got this system of reincarnation built in where you know, based on your current social class, how far or how close you are to the gods. And if you're reincarnated and you're born into a a poor family or you're born with a disability, something wrong with you in some way, it's an indication to you and to everybody around you of just how badly you must have missed the mark the last time around. So you end up with millions of Hindus who, who are rejected by society because they've been rejected by the gods and who live their whole lives in a very tangible state of rejection. Similarly, in Buddhism, the objective in Buddhism is to achieve nirvana. And to escape from the suffering of this world. According to the ever-reliable source Wikipedia, do you know how many people in the history of the world have even claimed, have even claimed to have reached nirvana? Eighteen. Eighteen people in the whole history of the world have reached nirvana. And among them are people like Jim Jones, the leader of the People's Cult. That's not a very high number. And just to round this whole thing out and be fair to everybody... On atheism, do you know how many people are going to be saved? How many are going to make it over there? The number is zero. Nobody. Because on atheism, all the religions are wrong and nobody gets saved. What happens is we live and then we die and we end up rotting in the dirt forever. That's the story. So on all these other views, salvation is very, very narrow. And that's a reality that you have to recognize. Every religion, including secular atheism, is exclusive and narrow. They all say that their way is the only way, that their truth is the truth, 
that everyone else is wrong and they alone are right. And all of them, all of them are based on works. They're based on your effort, your ability. Salvation is about what you do. And the vast majority of people are never going to be able to jump far enough to get there. And this is where Christianity is so radically different. Do you remember what Peter said in that trial in Acts 4 about salvation? He said that salvation is found in Jesus. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus did. You see, according to the Christian faith, the story of the world didn't begin with us over there. It actually began with us over there with God. God loves us and he created us for a relationship with himself. We were made to live over there with him forever. But what happened is that we all rebelled against God and we walked away from him. We separated ourselves from him because of our, our sin and we ended up over there. Our fundamental problem is our cosmic rebellion. And this gap here that you see on stage, this stage doesn't even capture it. The gap is way bigger. It's not just from, from one side to the other. It's, it's the size of the Grand Canyon. It's the distance from here to the moon. The gap is enormous. There's no way you could ever jump it. But because God still loves us, he didn't just leave us there. But what Jesus did is he came, he left heaven, and he came to us. He came over here to get us. And what he did over here is he lived that kind of life. He lived a right relationship with God in the world, bringing healing to people, restoring people, forgiving people. And then at the end of his life, he went to the cross. And on the cross, he died and he laid down his life to be the bridge across this chasm. He died to be the bridge to make a way. And where all these religions tell you that you've got to try hard enough, to do good enough, to be good enough, to jump across this canyon, Jesus tells you that he did everything. He did enough. He was good enough. And he lovingly and joyfully laid down his life so that you could have a safe way across the canyon. He came to be the bridge to salvation for you. And so sure, he said, I am the only way. But he actually made a way. He said, there's only one bridge. But there is a bridge. That's the good news. And anyone can cross it. You don't have to be smart or strong or rich or religious. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, what you've done, where you grew up, what your background it's not based on your culture, your class, your country of origin, your capacity to think, or your capability to keep commandments. Anyone can cross the bridge. Anyone can be made right with God now and forever. There is a way. There is a bridge. Because it's not based on you. It's based on Jesus. And so for that reason, in a world of narrow and exclusive truth claims, Christianity is actually by far the most broad and inclusive option. It says that against all odds, beyond all our wildest hopes, God made a way. He did it. And yeah, it's narrow in the sense that there's only one, but it's broad in the sense that there is a way and it is open to anyone. Salvation is available to you and to anybody through Jesus. It's there. So this whole thing we're talking about today is like this. Tomorrow, imagine that you go in to see your doctor for your annual checkup. And, uh, and, and you walk in, and, and you're just feeling amazing. Like, you, you've, uh, you've been hitting all your New Year's resolutions. You've been hitting the gym. You're eating right. Like, you just feel good. And you go in to see your doctor. And uh, your, your doctor runs some routine tests on you and steps out of the room for a few minutes. 
And when she walks back in, she looks at you and she says, I'm sorry to tell you this. Um, I, know you, I know you've been trying really hard and you're doing good stuff, but, but I, have some really, I have some really hard news to share with you. You ran those tests and, and it turns out that, that you actually have a really serious medical condition. You have a really serious illness. And, and, and if we don't do something about it really soon, you're going to die. It will be fatal. And, and, and in your mind, in that moment... You know, you, you, your mind starts racing and, and you start freaking out and you start thinking about your, your spouse and your kids and, and your future plans and, and your family and the people you love and everything that's going on in your world. And you're like, what, what am I going to do? But then the doctor looks at you and she says, but here's the good news. There's a medicine that can heal you. There's a cure. If you take the cure, you'll be fine. It'll take care of this problem for you. Now, in that moment, what are you going to say to her? What are you going to say to your doctor? Would you get angry and say to your doctor, Doctor, you're ruining my day. I came in here feeling awesome, and, and now you're telling me I've got this potentially terminal illness? I'm so offended by that that you would think that I'm sick. How, how can you say that I need healing? I don't believe you. I'm, I'm a, that's offensive. And doctor, what, what's up with you saying that there's only one medicine that can heal me? Like I go into Walgreens and I look at the pharmacy and there's all kinds of pills back there. Why can't I take all those other ones? Why are you giving me only one? That's so narrow. Like, no, that's not what you're going to say to the doctor in that moment. When the doctor tells you the truth that you're sick and then she tells you there's a cure, you're going to say, thank you, doc. Thank you for telling me what's really going on. Thanks for finding this out and letting me know so that we can do something about it. And thank God there's a medicine. Thank God there's a cure. I'll take it. How do I get it? Give me the one cure. Like, you just be so grateful for the accurate diagnosis and the accurate prescription. That's what you want in that moment. You know, the truth is that, that you and I do have a terminal illness. It's called sin, and it destroys us from the inside out. And what the religions of the world do with your illness, they see it and, and they prescribe you an exercise regimen. Saying that what you need to do is you need to get stronger spiritually. But Christianity actually says that you don't need, you need way more than exercise. You need a cure. Your problem is not that you're weak, it's that you're dead. And the good, but the good news is that there is a cure. There is one person who didn't have the disease and his blood was pure. And so he went to the cross to shed that blood and offer it to you as the cure. Jesus' blood is the medicine that can heal you. It's available to anyone and everyone free of charge. And all you have to do is receive it. And so here's the big idea this morning. Is Christianity too narrow? Well, like every religion and worldview, Christianity is narrow and exclusive. But in a world of narrow and exclusive truth claims... What Christianity offers you is by far the most broad and inclusive. It says anyone can cross the bridge. It offers the cure free of charge to any who will receive it. And so here's what all that we've talked about this morning means for us today. And I want to address two groups of people in the room. First, for those of us in the room who, who, who have crossed the bridge to salvation and who have received the cure... This means that no matter what the world around us says, 
we must continue to boldly proclaim the good news of salvation through Christ Jesus alone. In Acts 4, after the leaders threatened Peter and John, they said, whether it's right to listen to God or to you, you must judge, but we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Translation, we've got the cure. How can we not share it even if people don't want it? So don't compromise the message about the cure. Don't water it down. Don't be ashamed about it. Like, it's the best news in the world. There is a cure. So let's boldly offer it to a world that needs it. Y'all, this is why the church exists. This is why our church exists. We want people here in Chicago and all across the globe to hear and receive the good news of salvation through Jesus. We want them to know that there's a cure and to be able to cross the bridge. The, uh, the, the Super Bowl is tonight, right? Uh, go Rams. Anybody? Not the Patriots. Thank you. Um, but, but here's what's going to happen. At about 5.30 today, 5.30 p.m., right after kickoff, Tom Brady is going to be marching down the field, and he's going to be standing about the 12-yard line, heading into the end zone, in the red zone, um, because the Patriots are going to win because that's usually what they do. And, uh, and you can just imagine the scene. Imagine if, if in that moment Tom Brady huddles up with his whole offense and they, they gather around in their huddle. And Brady barks out the play call. Break! And then they just all jog over to the sidelines. And they just stand there on the sideline. Okay? Ref throws a flag, delay a game, five-yard penalty, repeat first down, yada, yada. All right, offense runs back on the field. Tommy huddles all those guys up again, calls out the play, break, jog back over to the sidelines. Like, what's, what's wrong with that scene? Like, that's not going to happen, is it? Because why do they huddle up in the first place? They huddle up so Tom Brady can call the play, and then they break so they can go run the play. The point of the huddle is that you can go out and you can run the play and get the ball into the stinking end zone. Do you all know why we huddle here on Sunday mornings? So that we can run the play. So we can get the cure out to the people. So even if people hate us more than they hate the Patriots, we've got to keep running the play. When we gather here, that's why we do it. So we can all go back out into the city and onto the nations to proclaim the salvation that is found in Christ. This is why we take initiative to reach out to our neighbors. This is why we plant new churches like West RP and we launch new works like Breakers. This is why we send out short-term mission trips and we send out long-term missionaries like the Park 100. So friends, hold fast to this gospel and keep sharing it. Run the play. Tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers, tell your Uber driver, tell your family and friends, and then hop on a plane and go tell some people on the other side of the planet. Let's run the play. All right, let me finish with this. There's some of, the, some, some of you here today, I want to talk to you for a second, who, who are standing over on this side. You've lived over here and, and you're, you're far from God. Maybe you're seeing that today for the first time. Maybe it's something you've known for a while. But you've never crossed the bridge. you never received the cure. And, and I think how all of this applies to you is probably obvious at this point. But I want to make sure it's crystal clear before you walk out those doors this morning. Peter said that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name by which we must be saved. And put positively, what that means is that there is salvation. There is a way people can come to God. 
And what the Christian faith offers you that no other religion or philosophy does is a God-made way across this chasm. Only Christianity offers you a cure. Only Christianity offers you a bridge. And this bridge, it's like one of those moving walkways in the airport. Like it doesn't even require you to walk across it. You don't even have to do that. All he asks of you is that you step onto it. That you trust him. That you put your faith in Jesus. And you let him do the rest of it for you and take you across to a restored relationship with God. So my challenge to you today, if that's you, is to take that step. Allow God to forgive your sins, to give you new life, give you a real relationship with him now and forever. Stop trying to jump across this chasm, but step out in faith and trust in Jesus and find the salvation that's only available in him. Would you bow your, bow your heads and close your eyes? And as the band comes up here, I'm going to give us a minute to, to pray and uh, reflect on this here. If, uh, if, if you're that person who, who's over on the far side, uh, across the canyon, and you're, you're just realizing today that, that you, you need what Jesus offers you, I'm going to pray a prayer, and, and I want to give you a chance to pray it along with me. You can just say it in your, in your, in your heart, say it in your, in your mind, and um, come tell somebody about it afterward. But it, it would go like this. This is a way that you can take that step of faith. Say, Jesus, I, I, I recognize that I'm far from you. I see the bridge in front of me. And by faith, I put my trust in you. Thank you for dying on the cross to be the bridge and to make a way for me. I receive you into my life as my Savior and Lord. And I commit to living in relationship with you from now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat. And uh, we're... Thanks, musicians. That was beautiful. Um, we're just going to take a few of your text-in questions here as we wrap up today. So uh, I think we've got a few of them. And with me, just to remind you, uh, Phil uh, Parker, who's a, a seminary student right now, works in campus ministry in his day job, um, a great part of our church here. So, um, yeah, we're going to try to tackle some of these questions. So here's the first one. What does Christianity have to say about the fate of people who live good lives but never get to hear about Jesus or the gospel. Um, emotionally, this is a hard question, right? Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a hard question. I'll just not say that. And, and it's, it's going to be hard to, to do justice to it in uh, like a minute up here. So if you want to talk more about this later, come talk to me and I'll, I'll say more. But um, the, the main thing to say is that uh, this gap is, is true for everybody, um, the, the idea that people live good lives is very relative. It's relative to me and you, they might live good lives. Relative to the standard, none of us lives a good life. We all fall short. And so all of us are, are justly deserving of this separation. All of us have rebelled against God. And so the, the short answer to this is that people who, who don't hear, don't respond to Jesus in faith are not going to be restored to a relationship with God. They're going to be separated from him. Um, and that one of the applications of that for us is that we need to go tell them so that that happens for fewer and fewer people. Okay? So if you want to talk more about that later, come, come see me. I know that's not even, uh, that, that, that doesn't do justice to the depth of this question, but that's something. All right, here's the next one. Jesus said that the road to salvation is narrow. Why is this? Why wouldn't God want most people, if not everyone, to be saved? 
Yeah, good, good question. If you look at the passage um, where Jesus is, is saying this and he's referring to, to the way to salvation is narrow, there's different ways that we can think of the word narrow. Um, there's a theologian, Dieter Bonhoeffer, who, if you know him, he um, was a German and he ended up giving his life and dying um, as an attempt to assassinate Hitler and he was a pastor. But one of the things that he, he thinks about and thinks through is how the God's grace is free, but it is not cheap. And what that, what that really means is the narrow, there is a narrowness to the gospel in the sense that receiving God's grace will take your life. When you give your life to Christ, you give it all. And, he, and, the, and when Jesus is saying that it's narrow, it's saying a lot of people aren't going to do that. It's free. It's just not cheap. So that's why I would kind of go that way. And if you want to talk more about that, please yeah. feel free to come up front at the end. Yeah. And, and I would just add to that that, that like, I think God does want people to be saved. Like he, he, scripture says that he desires that all should come to repentance. He's slow to anger. He's patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires that. The bridge is there. You've got to, you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Are you going to receive it or are you going to, are you going to trust him or not? Um, so, so that's his heart. He, he cares. He wants us to be saved. All right, here's the next one. Uh, I haven't been obeying God for a while now. Have I fallen off the bridge and into the canyon? Is there still hope for me? And that, that's such a good one. I'm so glad whoever asked this asked this. Um, a lot of these questions... Um, it might get us to, to doubt our faith, to, to get us thinking about questions we never thought before. I love this one because, uh, as Jamie pointed out so well today, yes, it's narrow in that um, the gospel is the only way. But it's broad in that anyone can come. And so, is there still hope for me? Do you still have air in your lungs? Are you still breathing today? Then there's hope for you. There's hope for you today. Because the gospel is broad in the fact that it's not based on your works. It's not based on how well did I keep the Ten Commandments. It's based on who do you know? Do you know him? Do you love him? And so it's exciting because, man, yes, there's hope for you today. What are some next steps? Talk to people on the sides. Talk to any of us. Pray and ask God, help me. Help me, God. I want to have faith. Help me with my unbelief. Yes, there's hope for you today. Amen. All right. Here's the next one. I guess this is for me. Uh, <laughs> Jamie. Jamie. How has this sermon series blessed you or affected your life? Thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, you know, the, the thesis of this series, that Christianity makes better sense than the alternatives, that it makes enough sense to believe, to be believed, like, man, as, you, as I dig into this stuff more and more, that just gets affirmed over and over again. Like, um, I, I, th there's a scene in John's gospel where a bunch of pe Jesus gives a hard teaching and a bunch of, people, a bunch of people who had been following him turn and walk away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he, sa disciples and he says, um, hey, are you guys going to leave too? Or are you all going to take off too? And, and they look at him and they say, Lord, where else are we going to go? Like there's no other, there's no better option. There's nowhere else to go. If I leave you, I've got to go somewhere else. And there's not a better, better, better choice. And, and I think going through this has just really affirmed that for me, that, man, th this, this is the best option. This is the truth. It's, it's, worth, it's worth my faith. It's worth my life. So. All right. Long one. Uh, the history of Judaism, which Christianity and its claims grow out of, is around 3,500 years old. Why would God allow developed religions to exist for thousands of years before revealing the truth of who he is? And for thousands of years when there was no way to contact unreached people groups. Indus Valley civilization, pagans in the UK, paleo-Indians in the Americas. So this one is loaded and there's a lot here, so we're definitely not going to be able to do justice to all of it. But, Phil, you want to say yeah. something? Yeah. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
this is the beginning of a good conversation, this question. I think one of the things just to maybe point out is just that um, we believe when we look at the Bible, the opening words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and as you look at the beginning of creation and the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, God was there in their, in their lives. Um, Adam and Eve then rebelled against God. Um, but God didn't leave. He stayed there. He, and he, he, in that moment, began the story of redemption that led up to the cross and up to Christ. And that option is still free today. So I think a lot of, when we think of history, God, is, God has been in it all. He's been, he's been there through it all. Um, there's a good part there in this that says, and for thousands of years when there was no way to contact un, unreached people groups, there's a, there's a, there's a, there was a responsibility on the church. Um, we, we would take that responsibility um, on our shoulders. Jamie's, that illustration of the church coming together as a huddle and then going out, that's beautiful. That's perfect. That's what we are. That's why we exist as a church, to go and reach the unreached. And if you look at the, the church and the early church, how fast it's scattered, some of it because of persecution and some of it because the people got that the huddle came together and the huddle then went out across the world. And people have been doing that um, for centuries and thousands of years, going and proclaiming Christ to unreached people groups. And that's why a park, there's the Park 100 and many of you guys too have a heart to go and reach the unreached reached and that's on our shoulders but please come continue that conversation up at the front yeah i just wanted to, to uh, make a, a quick point there help us maybe reorient uh, uh the question um reorient our minds in light of it so there's a there's a hidden assumption or premise in this question it's a really good question and that's you know is there injustice on god's part is god in un unjust for not revealing himself fully uh at the beginning of time and um Man, if we want to talk justice, we don't want to talk justice with God. What would it look like for God to give humanity justice? And it's the, it's the flood without the ark, right? Like, that's justice. And so is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He, the whole point of today, the, the broadness of the gospel is that, yeah, he's progressively revealing himself through scripture, through history, and he made a way for us. And so, you know, why are there other religions? Why does God allow those? There's always going to be suppression of the truth. There's always going to be, I want to believe what I want to believe about God. And so is there injustice on God's part for not doing, man, he's the one who wrote the story. And yet, instead of just crushing his image bearers who rebel against him, he made a way for us to be made right with him. To have eternal life, which is not floating around in the heavens with wings. It's knowing God forever.